0: We're going to get started, and uh, some others might be trickling in as well as we go, but tonight's subject is leadership, uh, biblical leadership. Now, if you haven't noticed yet, we are going to be starting to transition from uh, marriage relationships. Tonight is kind of we're, we're pushing towards the idea of family relationships, and next week it'll be full-blown parenting. Uh, Next week is restoring discipline, and then the week after that is restoring worship and uh, the spiritual leadership of the home. So tonight is very, very pivotal because we're kind of in between the two. And what does uh, God say about leadership in the family, in the nuclear family? What does that look like? And while tonight's topic is supposed to be about leadership, There's a problem at the root of this subject that needs to be examined, and that root is, the root problem is the idea of manhood and womanhood and what gender has to do with relationships in the family and so on. Manhood and womanhood are at the root of our personhood, who you are as a person, how you are defined as a person, has a lot to do with whether or not you are a man or a woman, and you cannot be detached from that, even though society wants to try to detach us from that. So this session is not intended simply to define our separate roles that are to be played out by the husband and by the wife in marriage and family life. In other words, we're not here tonight just to say, uh, so the man should lead, the woman should submit, Problem solved, have a nice night. That's not what we're here to do. It's a little more complicated than that. We're going to dig a little deeper. We're going to try to understand tonight how to celebrate the differences God has wisely woven into each of us, and why he made man, why he made woman, why he made them with these distinct differences, and then brings them into a covenant relationship with each other much in the same way that if you're listening to a choir like we just had over Easter weekend, or if you're listening to an orchestra, or you're listening to the worship band on a Sunday, there are different instruments, there are different voice tones, there are different parts to play. Or if you're watching sports and you're watching hockey or football and so on, I mean, can can you imagine there are guys that are paid? They are paid a full-time salary, a very a very generous full-time salary, and all they do is practice how to kick a ball. Literally, just kick the ball. And they might kick it two, three times in a football game and that's it, that's all they do is kick the ball, right? That's their part to play. And it's no less pivotal, it's no less important than the quarterback, well, maybe the quarterback has a little more importance there uh, as far as the team goes, but each of these parts to play, whether it's on a team or in a choir or a band or whatever, they, are all, they all have value, they all have specific value, they all have something to contribute. And in the same way, we're gonna look at how to celebrate the differences in marriage. So in other words, well, let's see here, there we go. In other words, the first question we're going to ask is regarding the man. How does the man meaningfully move toward his wife in a way that connects with her? By the way, that word connect is underlined because that's going to be a key word and we're gonna establish that tonight from scripture. But secondly, from the other direction, we're gonna ask the question, how does a woman effectively show respect toward her husband in a way that completes him? Again, key word. So with the man, how does he meaningfully move toward his wife? The idea is pursuit. How does he pursue his wife in a meaningful way? And with the woman, how does she show respect? Again, the idea is respect. And again, that is a biblical concept, Ephesians 5, and we will be looking at that a little while later. So we're going to talk tonight about men living out their God-designed manhood and what that looks like may not look like what the culture wants it to look like, either extreme. The culture has two extremes on the idea of manhood. Neither of them are biblical. We're also going to talk about women living out their God-designed womanhood as God made them. And we will eventually talk just for a very short time about children living out their God-ordained position in the family as well. Now, common gender issues in relationships are Well, they're obvious already, I would hope after the three nights that we've spent together, clearly we can see there are differences in the way we communicate. I mean, that was was obvious just by your reactions when we were describing the differences, and the differences in the way we think, how we interpret things, differences in uh, sexual desire, and how we approach sexual intimacy, as we saw last week. There are differences in... How we respond emotionally to things, how connected we are to, and and how uh, understanding we are to our emotional IQ. Our physical differences, the physical changes that women go through in their lifetime versus the physical changes that men go through in their lifetime. Physical challenges that each face, physical differences between the two. One was not intended to do what the other can do. It has never been that way. Was never intended to be that way so with that in mind we're just going to pray and ask the lord to help us and guide us tonight so father we just ask that as we come to you again knowing that you are the creator you are the one who made marriage you made the family and you made us man and woman distinctively you did that for your glory it was not by mistake and our culture tries to make it a problem In fact, it it goes beyond culture, it's not just culture, it's really the result of sin entering the world, our rebellion against you. Because of that, manhood and womanhood has become a problem in our world, and Lord, we just ask tonight that you would give us a new perspective, a perspective that comes by way of the gospel we learned last week that Lord Jesus, you are redeeming the world to yourself through the cross, through your work on the cross, and we thank you for that. We just ask that tonight we would have a redeemed perspective on our roles and on our abilities within our relationships and understand and celebrate what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Well, how did... The complement become the competition. That's the story of Genesis 2, isn't it? Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. This is Genesis 2, where Adam says, this at last, at last, like he's been waiting for it for so long. At last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, right? He had been naming all the animals, and he had been categorizing all the animals, and, but there didn't seem to be one that was like him, There wasn't one that completed him, that complemented who he was, and now at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and we call this complementary. She complemented or completed him as a man. And he sounds pretty excited about this. In fact, he continues and says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Pretty exciting. He's naming her, he's giving her a name, and it has everything to do with her connection with him. But eventually, it turned into this. Now, this is something he says to God. When God comes and says, Adam, what have you done? Why are you acting this way? You're acting very strange, right? Like your kids. I know I just I have dad sense you know I know when my kids are acting guilty you just have that radar right well God knows all things and God absolutely knew what happened to them and he's saying Adam why are you acting this way right why do you have clothes on what's going on with you and of course what does Adam do he turns and he throws his wife who he was once so excited that she complimented him now he's throwing her under the bus and he's saying the woman who you gave to be with me in other words your fault god and it's her fault too right pick take your pick it's one or the other it's not my fault it's definitely not my fault she's the one who gave the fruit of the tree and i ate it by the way there's nothing in the bible that says it was an apple just so you know i don't know why we instinctively think that eve ate an apple i think maybe that came from snow white i'm not sure but it's not in the bible well we know what happened in between was this, in Genesis three, now this is competition, now all of a sudden they're pitted against each other, right, they're pointing the finger at each other, and she's pointing the finger at the serpent, saying, well, it's the serpent's fault. Well, what happened? Again, we're returning to the scene of the accident, just like we did last week, and we find out this is what happened, Genesis three, four. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this is very interesting. He says it to the woman. He doesn't say it to the man. But we also find out something very quickly, that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she... "'decided of herself, she took of its fruit and ate, "'and she also gave some to her husband who was with her.'" Who's taking the lead in this story? It's definitely not Adam, he's passive. "'She took the lead, the serpent came to her. "'Who did God command, "'you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? "'The day you eat of it, you will surely die.'" who did he say that to? He said it to the man, Adam. But now Adam's standing here passively, silently, not taking the lead. She's taking the lead. She's deciding for herself, this looks good. She's eating. She gives to him, and he eats. He has a choice to make in that moment. Do I trust God, or do I follow my wife? Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths." We're going to come back a little while later to the consequences of that, that God gave to them, because those consequences tell us everything about what these two individuals, as a man and as a woman, lost that had everything to do with what they were supposed to have or gain. All right? They knew immediately they had a problem. The problem was with themselves. And by the way, when God said, you shall surely die, they died in four ways. Just so we understand, they died, first of all, to God, they were separated from God, they would die physically, they died, they died to the world, and they died to each other. Right? They, they were cut off from everything, they didn't understand who they were, they were cut off from each other, they were cut off from God, and they were cut off from creation. Everything was against them at this point. Death in all directions. And so they take off running, and then when they're called out by God, they turn on each other like it's Lord of the Flies all over again. Well, the culture has some solutions to our gender problem. The gender is against each other. We see it all the time. We see it everywhere. If you want to go back again to uh, the classes in the fall on cultural issues, we did look at this. Uh, On one of the evenings, we kind of looked at some of these differences, but everyone is trying to solve the gender wars. Just like all the problems of the world, people recognize the problem, they just don't know exactly how to diagnose it. And if you don't know how to diagnose the problem, you're not going to come up with a proper solution. And uh, they haven't diagnosed it properly, but they've tried a number of ways to try and fix the issue with gender differences Multiple attempts outside of God's word to label the problem before attempting to fix it Culture does this quite often. This is why movies are not just movies. They're not just entertainment and as Christians We need to be equipped to be watching what the culture produces in order to converse with it in order to engage with it and say What are they saying is wrong and how are they saying we should fix it? And we need to be teaching our kids how to do this as well They often recognize the problem, not always the proper diagnosis or solution. So the first one is feminism. This came about in the 1960s because of the sexual revolution. Women were starting to be liberated, especially sexually liberated. I can sleep with whoever I want. Of course, that has backfired in many different ways. Uh, The proposed problem was that we live in a male-dominated culture, where women are not treated as equal, so unfair wages and so on. Women are treated as something less than men. All right. So, fair enough, you've seen a problem out there in the world. What is your solution? Well, women must prove they can do everything that a man can do, and they can do it better than a man. This is what feminism tries to teach The women of our culture today women must gain their independence and dominance many have been hurt genuinely hurt by men in their life whether it's a father or a grandfather or an uncle or a male neighbor or a boyfriend or a husband and so on and so we put up the walls and we try to protect and we're going to prove that we don't need men we're going to find out a little while later that this did not take God by surprise he said it was going to happen The issue is that it should be obvious to both men and women that we were built differently. We were built differently physically, cognitively, psychologically, etc., We have different strengths and we have different weaknesses those were meant to complement each other and help each other even if they have been distorted the solution is not to create a civil war between the genders that's not the solution and of course the result has been that men are very confused in our world now because our world is so Uh, inclined towards feminism men are very confused and don't know what it means to be a man anymore and should i open the door for that lady or not i'm not sure i don't want to offend and become very passive very backward very silent very emasculated and so on that's the culture we live in secondly we separate biology from being and this is where the transgender culture has come in Who we are on the outside, in other words, our anatomy, is not who we are on the inside, our true identity. That's what the culture is proposing as a problem. Our sex and our gender are separate. One should not define the other. Personhood should not be based or integrated with whether or not we are male or female. The proposed solution, while well, we see it all around us. This is absolute confusion today with young people who are too young to be even thinking about making choices like this, are actually altering their lives. And again, we spoke about this during the last session on cultural issues. If you look up the one on sexual, the sexual revolution, we did look at this. Uh, but I have to move on. They basically say, well, let the people decide for themselves what they want to be, regardless of the body parts they were born with. This is not even confined to gender anymore. It's confined, it, it's even, it goes wider to species. You can be whatever kind of species you want to be now. You don't even have to be human anymore. And of course, the issues are obvious, and the issues between this and feminism are obvious. Just take college sports, for instance. If you're reading the news, you know what I'm talking about. Third, unlawful relationships. So here's another proposed problem. Well, men find women very hard to understand and relate to, and women can find men very dangerous at times to fall in love with and to trust. And so, proposed solution? Well, maybe you fit better if you're a man, maybe you fit better with another man. So men can fall in love with men, women with women, it's just easier that way, or it's in our DNA. We were born this way, we were programmed this way. Well, obviously there are many issues with this, one being God's wrath, because scripture clearly defines this as sin. It's not the only sin, obviously. There are many sins, but listen, Romans one makes it very clear, and, and by the way, If this were to be normalized, like the culture talks about normalizing this, if you normalize this, what kind of a future does a nation have? There's no procreation. It goes against nature. There's misery that's connected with this lifestyle. You do not have a future of a nation if this becomes normal. And it can't become normal because it's against the very design of our world and of creation itself. Romans one, Paul describes this kind of society. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Listen, this as a cultural issue is not the root issue. Paul says it's the fact that they've tried to suppress the truth. He establishes this. He says, Four, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How has he shown it to them? Well, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world into things that have been made. Why are atheists so angry against God? I mean, why would you be angry against something that doesn't exist? In fact, why do atheists even talk about whether there's a God or not? Why would they bother? If there's no God, get on with your life. Move on. Why would Richard Dawkins go and write books all about the God he says doesn't exist? And he's made millions off of the proceeds of those books. Why would you do that? Because there's a God sense in all of us, even the atheists. There are no atheists in the world even though they're claimed to be. I find that interesting, that even podcasters like Joe Rogan talks all the time about God. They they interview people. Jordan Peterson, just kind of always like, Jordan Peterson will actually talk about this. There's a God sense in all of us. You remove God, something else fills the void, right? It's there. That's what Paul is trying to say in Romans 1. They are without excuse. They can see it. The world's been made by someone. It's been designed. For although, Paul says, they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, what did they do? They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. And we see this in our culture today. Paul was spelling out 2,000 years ago exactly what's going on, whether it's with the sexual revolution, environmentalism, whatever it is, we have placed the creature above the creator, and we worship that. That has become the thing. It fills that God sense that we're trying to suppress. We're trying to push off. So what happened? Therefore, Paul says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, the creature part rather, rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise. Gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. He goes on to list a number of other sins in Romans 1 that make us all, all of us, guilty and fallen short of the glory of God. The point is all of us need a savior. All of us need a savior. However, this is just another way that culture is trying to solve a known or foreseen problem. It hasn't worked, and it won't work. The fourth one I wanted to mention are cultural solutions inside the church. Yes, the culture is pressuring the church to be more about justice and love and loving your neighbor. The church is being seen as irrelevant and backward, holding to traditional values of man and woman and heterosexual relationships as the de- definition of marriage. Or even the, not just the values of man and women, but the roles that men play a specific role and women play a specific role. And so the church is left kind of embarrassed kind of a little bit timid, don't know what to do with this, and somehow we need to dress up the definition of manhood and womanhood that doesn't offend anyone. And maybe the culture will get off our backs and leave us alone. We will, make, we will make no distinction between men and women in the church. So therefore, even though Scripture is very clear that there are roles that men specifically play in the church, there are roles that women specifically play in the church, a lot of churches are very timid about that, and so they say, no, 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 we're, we're just going to push that into the cultural context of Scripture and say, well, our cultural context is different. Do you know what our cultural context is? It's a culture that has denied God's authority. So if you want to try and put the Scripture into a cultural context where the culture has denied God's authority, you're going to have a really hard time without denying God's authority yourself. That's the only solution. Or you can preach the Bible unapologetically and not be ashamed about it because it is God's word for all cultures at all times until Jesus comes back. That might be the way to go. But the church is trying to, and the church in general, I'm saying in a mass scale, it's actually quite frightening in the last couple of years just to watch how much compromise has taken place in the Western world. And if we do, we don't want to talk about this unless it's absolutely necessary, but God's Word is clear, and God's design is good. Yes, it's good. That's one of the things we want to try and get across tonight. Is not just that we're not embarrassed about this, but God's design is actually good. If you lean into it and trust Him, it's good, and we're not going to make apologies for it. Well, let's go into what that design actually looks like. What is the design in the differences? Well, we're not going to let culture define our view of gender differences and roles. Okay, we get that. Uh, Are we going to look at God and ask what He has to say? Well, obviously, in a vertical relationship, if that's what we're about, restoring the vertical family, we're gonna turn away from culture, and we're gonna to listen to what God has to say. That's what we're gonna do. And the first thing we have to consider is what is God like? I did bring this up in the last classes as well, that the Romans ran their families the very same way that they saw their gods. The gods that they worshiped at that time defined how they related to each other. And it's true for a biblical Christian. The God we know The God we worship is going to be reflected in how we relate to each other horizontally. That's what a vertical relationship is. Closer we get to God, the better we relate with each other. That's how it works. We've covered that. Well, the first question we're going to ask is, what is God like? Well, Scripture describes God as being one essence, but three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We call it the Trinity. That term is not in Scripture, but the reality of it is all over Scripture. Each person in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is 100% God. None is less God or more God. Each person, though, has a distinct role to play. So we're going to make sure that we understand that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, okay? So God doesn't show up in three different forms. That's called modalism. No, Scripture teaches that God is three distinct persons in a community, in one essence, God. All right? That's all through Scripture, it's especially uh, explicit in the New Testament. They are the same in value, they have different roles and responsibilities, perfect unity in community, but you'll notice there's diversity as well as unity, right? The Father has a specific diverse role to play from the Son, and the Son has a specific diverse role to play from the Holy Spirit. This is really important. Because when we come to verses like this one in 1 Corinthians eleven three, 3, look at what Paul says. I want you to understand that the head, and by head he means leader, head of every man is Christ. So who's my leader? Christ. The head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ, notice this last one, this is Trinity, this is theology the head of christ is god in other words the father well that's interesting does that mean christ is less than the father absolutely not we're going to see that a little while later here's another one this one's interesting john fifteen twenty-six. jesus is speaking he's talking to his apostles he's describing what is going to happen after he's gone after he's left the world, and he says, but when the Helper, capital H, Helper comes, that is the, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you, notice Jesus the Son is sending the Spirit to you, the apostles, from the Father, so he's coming from the Father, we now have three persons in the Trinity, the Spirit of Truth, that's what Jesus calls him, who proceeds from the Father, he, he's a person, He's not some kind of entity or some kind of thing out there. He will bear witness of me. He's a distinct person. Notice all of them have a role to play. The Father is the one who is the source of the Spirit coming. And Jesus is the one who achieves the method or the way in which the Holy Spirit comes into the world and starts convicting people of sin and so on and judgment to come. They all have the role to play. And guess what? That's the gospel. As we watch God work in this community of the Trinity, it's the gospel. We see all of them working together in perfect unity. Now, head means authority. That's what it means. God the Father is head of Christ. Christ is submissive to his Father. Both are mutually honoring each other. Jesus actually prays in John 17, just a little while after he said this. In John 17, he prays and he says, Father glorify your son. He's just about to go to the cross and then he's going to rise again from the dead. So he's asking his father through the cross, through the crucifixion and through the resurrection, glorify your son. Why? So that your son may glorify you. See how mutual that is? Glorify me so that I can glorify you. They're working together towards the glory of God. God is eternal. So guess what? This idea of authority and submission, this model is older than the world. It's been around a long time. It's not old. It's living. It's eternal. It's been there as long as God has been there, and that's forever. He didn't have a beginning. Culture has shaped us to believe that authority is good, submission is bad. It takes a long long time of worshiping God, getting to know God, to see this very differently. The idea in the Trinity that we want to try and understand is there's no better or worse, or there's no more important and less important in this structure. Jesus is not less important than the Father. So here's what Wayne Grudem, a theologian, said about this. He said, when we begin to dislike the very idea of authority and submission, not distortions and abuses of those things, which, yes, authority can be distorted, submission can be distorted, absolutely. But when we dislike the very idea, Grudem says, we are tampering with something very deep. We are beginning to dislike God himself. Well, that's sobering. So our idea, our understanding of submission and authority, when we bristle at that, go, ooh, I don't like that term. Now, it might be one thing to say, I don't like it when husbands dominate their wives. And I don't like it when wives constantly reject and disrespect their husbands. That's a distortion of it. But the very idea of that, when we dislike that, Grudem is saying, we dislike the very nature of who God is. That's scary. All right, let's move on. That's number one, but we want to continue on and notice that there's a need for other-centered thinking, Philippians 2. And again, we have another reference to the Trinity. Paul was talking to a group of Christians, and two of the women that we know of in this church in Philippi were actually fighting with each other at the time, and later on he's going to tell them to work this out. But In this passage, he's telling the the Christians they need to have a a certain way of thinking in them. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Why would we do this? What model do we have? Verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, Philippians 2, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, what did he do? He says, Though he was in the form of God, so he's God, He did not count equality with God, something to be grasped at, because he already is God, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly, God the Father now comes into the picture, he has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you notice again how the Son is glorifying the Father, and now the Father is responding and glorifying the Son? You will truly fulfill your gender role when you focus on the needs of the other. Men, you want to learn how to be a man Husbands, you wanna learn how to work out your manhood? I'm gonna give you a little advice. You need to study what it means for your wife to be a woman. Stop focusing on what it means for you to be a man. Start focusing on what it means for your wife to be a woman. Identify her hurts, her frustrations, her needs. They're different than yours. So study that, research it, look into it, then then move toward her in a way that benefits her. That defines what a real man is. You say, I thought a real man benches 400 pounds. No, that's a real male. That doesn't make you a man. A real man moves toward his wife in a way that connects effectively with her. Again, we looked at that last week when we were talking about intimacy. Intimacy and the idea of touching her soul. Wives, you wanna learn what it means to be a real woman? What womanhood truly is? Well, I honestly have no idea. But I'm gonna give you some advice. It's kind of the same, just in the different direction. You need to investigate what it means for your husband to be a true man. Identify his wounds, his insecurities, his needs move toward him in a way that builds him up. That defines true womanhood. This is even more important if you're the Christian in the relationship and your husband or your wife is an unbeliever. All right, let's move on. Well, there's also beauty in diversity, and I want to get, go even further. Okay, what does that look like? What does it look like to approach my wife as a man? What is this difference that you speak of? Sounds mysterious. Well, again, we're going to look at, we're going to go back to the scene of the accident and we're going to just notice what it was that Adam lost, first of all. What did the man lose in the fall? So, after Adam throws his wife under the bus and after she throws the serpent under the bus, God just lets them continue to speak until they incriminate each other and then eventually he moves in and he starts to deal with all of them appropriately and for the man here's what the man lost I want you to notice this to Adam he said because you've listened to the voice of your wife notice that again didn't take leadership listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you you shall not eat of it cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What is being described here? What was the man intended to do that now is going to be very difficult for him to do? This is the curse for a man who was made and created to move out into his world to make an effective difference. From this point on, the world would fight him every step of the way. He moves out to make a difference, and now he feels inadequate, right? This is, the, this is the struggle that men have. There's this little boy in our brains that wants to just pick up our bat and ball and go home. We hate failure. We're scared of failure. It's actually what gets us up in the morning is the motivation. I don't want to fail. But there's this sense of inadequacy. There's this fear of rejection. There's this fear of being disrespected. It's maybe more than a fear. Maybe it's a terror. And so he moves out to make a difference in a woman's world, his wife. I think that might have been the scariest moment of my life, the moment that I stepped out and actually told Ange, what i was feeling for her and in that moment i knew she has the power to reject me right here and right now i was pretty sure she wouldn't at that point i was pretty sure but there's always that fear a man moves out to make a difference in a woman's his wife's world in relationship to her he's looking for her to respond to his initiation he's looking for respect in other words, he's looking to be completed, right? That's why we move out. We're doing new ventures. We're looking for new adventures. We're taking risks. We're Whatever it is, this is why men enjoy shoulder-to-shoulder activities with each other. This is why it is. Men will go golfing. Men will play sports. Men will sit on the couch and watch a game together. Why? The first question a guy will always ask another guy is, what? Yeah, what do you do for a living? right it's always kind of focused on what the man does where he goes right so we're shoulder to shoulder we're doing things together may not even say a word and we come home fulfilled it's like yeah we had a a great golf game today right feel completed or frustrated generally if it's golf i come home frustrated but uh, for the woman it's different what did the woman lose Genesis 3.16, to the woman God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth, in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, you're going to reject your husband and he's going to try and control or dominate you. Do you notice she suffers two things with this curse? Both of them are in relation to her attachment to her husband, Adam. First of all, with her physical connection to him, she suffers in the pain of childbirth. Her emotional connection to him would result in a power struggle. But in both cases, she was built to connect, she's built to invite others into relationship. She's more focused on the relationships and the connections, and that's why our wives are far more in tune with the health of our relationship. And guys, we can often be so clueless with it because we're constantly looking at what we have to do. We're mission focused. This is why women enjoy face-to-face conversation with each other, and they're asking about family and kids and this and that and who said what, and they're more about connection. These are the differences and God designed them. He designed them because he's a good God and what he does is perfect. They're intended to be enjoyed. Okay. One other thing we need to understand about both women and men is that we are equally image of God. Equally image of God. Notice what Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is before he even describes making Eve and bringing her to Adam. He doesn't describe that yet, but he makes very clear when it comes to the image of God, male and female are both made in his image. Both completion and connection are attributes of God. He moves out into our world, and he fulfills his promises. He achieves his purposes. But he also invites us into relationship with himself and connects very deeply with us. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. He invites us into relationship. Both completion and connection are attributes of God, and together we reflect the beauty of his character, both of us. If it was just men in the world, we'd only partially reflect the beauty of who God is. And if it was just women in the world, we would only partially reflect who God is. But both are made in his image and after his likeness. and We emphasize the different aspects of his beauty. That's what we do. We highlight different aspects of who God is. So again, Wayne Gruden says, No other creature in all of creation, not even the powerful angels, are said to be the image of God. It's a privilege given only to us as men and women. We are more like God than any other creature in the universe. That's incredible, for we alone are in the image of God. Every time we look at each other or talk to each other as men and women, we should remember that the person we are talking to is a creature of God who is more like God than anything else in the universe. Your husband, your wife, more like god than anything else in the universe the men and women and men and women share that status equally it's very important to understand when we look at these differences that both highlight particular beauties of who god is and what are we supposed to do we're supposed to redeem or the differences being redeemed through the gospel lead to enjoyment kind of like dancing One leads, one follows the lead, but there's a dance going on and both partners are working to coordinate in that dance. The subject of headship in marriage is often presented as a drag. I know, wives, it's going to be hard, but you need to submit, you know, and it's almost given as though we're embarrassed about talking about it. It wasn't intended to be this way. And Jesus on the cross... Again, demonstrating the distinct beauties and differences in the roles of the Trinity. He's the one dying on the cross. The Father's the one who sent him. The Holy Spirit is the one who is applying this work to the entire world, all of them working together for the glory of God. When couples learn to dance and celebrate their differences, they begin to reflect the goodness of who God is in those differences. So Paul says in Ephesians 5, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The gospel restores that. At some point, that one flesh has been divided. And God says the wife is going to want to go her own way, and the husband's going to want to try and control her and gain the respect from her that she's not giving to him. But Paul says, no, through the gospel, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife. Men, that's what we are to do. We are to move out into the world of our wife. Love her as him, love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, so how does this work out? Take a few minutes before we go for a break and then come back for a discussion with another couple tonight. We're going to take a few minutes and just try to work out the differences in these roles. What does this look like? What are we called to? I'm going to pick on the men first. Because men, we are called first of all to lead and, and what does that look like? So 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. There's a few things in those characteristics that he says. In in verse 14, he says, let all that you do be done in love. But the idea of acting like men has everything to do with watchfulness, standing firm, and strength. And then, let all that you do be done in love. We're not to be ashamed of this. This is what biblical manhood looks like. First of all, men we are called to lead. First Corinthians eleven three 3 again, we already read this, but the man is uh, the head of the wife. Notice the head of a wife is her husband. What does that look like? What is that supposed to look like? We lead as Jesus, the perfect man, the last Adam led. What is that model like? How do you describe it? Well, the best way to describe it would be it's not just a leadership, but it's a servant leadership. Some amazing stories in Scripture about Jesus teaching His disciples this type of leadership. One of them was when they were sitting in a room together for a dinner, and there was no actual host of this building that they were in where they were eating the last supper, and uh, they're sitting around uh, the table, and there is a task that the host always supplies for his guests, and that is to have a nameless slave come in the room and go around and wash the guests' feet at the table because they've been traveling a long ways with sandals on dusty roads. And it was just something that was done. It was always done. It was supposed to be done. Well, none of the apostles in that room wanted to get up and do it for their, for their brothers. None of them. And Jesus gets up, takes off his clothes, puts on the robes of a... Or the, basically takes on the appearance of a slave, the nameless slave, and he goes around the room and he washes the disciples all these men that were following him he was their head he was their lord he was their king and he goes around the room and he washes their feet and as he does it he's teaching them what it looks like to lead in a way that cares for the well-being and the health of the other not a despot not a dictator it's a combination of strength and gentleness and humility The focus is not on calling the shots and getting our way, that is not what this form of leadership is. The goal is glorifying God in our marriage and in our family, leading for the glory of God. We are agents, and one day we have to answer to God for how we led our families. It's sobering. So, men, it's your responsibility to be the first to apologize doesn't make you weak. doesn't make you wrong. It actually fills her desire for you to connect with her. You're moving into her world, and I know it is terrifying because you face the possibility of rejection, but it's actually what she's hungering for. She's desiring for you to reconnect. She's desiring you for to cross that bridge, shark-infested waters, a little bit of a joke between my wife and I to swim across shark-infested waters for her. It's for you to be the first to speak up. It's your responsibility to be the first to offer help. You get home from work. It's not, honey, where's my dinner? I'm a man. That's not leadership. That's not servant leadership. Be the first to offer help. Be the first to pursue your wife actively pursue your wife on a daily basis secondly you're called to love kind of goes along with this but it's interesting that in ephesians 5 again this is a key text keeps coming back but ephesians 5 paul tells husbands to love your wives as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her now verse 29 is on the screen And I just want to read what it says because there's some key words here. For he says, no one ever hated his own flesh. He says the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Let me ask you, men, do you nourish and cherish your wife? Above all else, is she the first ministry in your life? Just as Christ does the church. Nourishing is the idea of promoting health and strength. Do you promote the health of your wife, or are you all you worry about? Spiritually, do you promote her spiritual health? Do you encourage her? Do you speak into her? You know, women have a voice in their their minds that constantly is telling them, you're not enough, you're not enough. And while that's true, and the gospel says, yeah, you can celebrate that. You're not enough. Jesus is. While that's true, as husbands, we move into that space with a message that says, you're beautiful to me. We looked at that last week from Song of Solomon. There's no flaw in you. It's, very, it's, it's nourishing her. It's promoting health and strength. Cherishing is the idea of treating as valuable, something that's a treasure to me, and I'm going to cherish it, much like that classic car in the garage that we keep covered, we don't take it out in the winter, we we shine it and polish it and everything else. Care for your wife that way? You cherish her with that kind of diligence? Next, we're called to provide. Yes, there's something in your husband's Wives, there's something in your husbands It's just instinctively there. It's part of our identity. We have an instinct in us to provide for our families, primarily for our wife and then for our children as well. Paul made it very clear that if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat, 2 Thessalonians 3. God's judgment on Adam was directly connected to his work in the world. We work to provide for our family as Jesus has provided for us the model of diligent provision. Now there might be some temporary exceptions to this. I remember when we first got married, I was still in school, my wife had a full-time job, she worked, I was in school, but that didn't stay that way. When I got out of school, I got a job pretty quick and uh, started to provide, but men, that's our role. We're called to provide. Fourth, we're also called to protect. Likewise, husbands, First Peter, this is the Apostle Peter now, chapter 3. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Stand up for your wife's honor. Be her defender and advocate in the same way as Jesus is our defender. In order to survive, this is Dr. Larry Crabb. He says, in order to survive in a world where people carelessly hurt her and use her for their own purposes, she learns, the woman learns to cover her delicate nature with a hard crust, a toughness, always on alert for dangers. When she's by herself long enough to reflect on what she really wants, she becomes at least vaguely aware sometimes acutely to the point of despair, of how nice it would be if someone were tough for her. Deep within her being, she longs for an advocate, not a tyrant, an advocate, but an advocate whose strength on her behalf, not a tyrant who would control her life with his strength, no, whose strength on her behalf would free her to go off-duty, to let go of the need to protect herself from relational danger and to express more of who she really is. She longs for an advocate who would enjoy her and give her the hope that she could invite people into meaningful relationship with the confidence that there really was something about her that could be enjoyed. I think that's, One of the major reasons why there are so many tough and hardened feminists in our culture today is because of men who have not lived up to this biblical model of protection. And this goes to dads. Protect your daughters. Tell them they're beautiful. Remind them of your love for them unconditionally. All right, let's go to biblical womanhood. And Proverbs 31, obviously, is the key text for this. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Well, first of all, you're called, ladies, to relate. I hope that's obvious by now. tried to develop that tonight but again Proverbs 31 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will lack he will have no lack of gain she does him good not harm all the days of her life do you know how a husband learns to trust his wife is when she shows him respect every man has that voice am I adequate Am I in, can I live up to this? No, we're not perfect. And no, we'll never live up to the standard of what God requires. That's why we have Christ. But a wife who is a minister, who is an ambassador for Christ, can reach into her husband's life with that kind of a gospel touch and show him the respect that says that your moving into my world has affected me has affected me powerfully. Now, you may not have the confidence in God yet or the spiritual maturity to carry this out. You may still be trying to protect yourself, still wanting to run and hide, close yourself off from connecting or inviting others into relationship, especially your husband. But seeing, seek out, pardon me, godly women who can challenge and encourage you in this. This is why Paul instructed Older women in Titus 2, likewise, to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train young women to do what? To love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And by the way, to mature ladies in the faith. I know of many young wives, many young mothers who would love to have you in their lives, supporting them and giving them encouragement and counsel and so on. That's a great need in the church in general. Secondly, you are called to nurture. This is something men are not very good at. We relate in very different ways with our children. But Proverbs 31, verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children, they rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Do you know that if you read through the history of the kings in Scripture, you rarely read, you know, his father was, the new king that rose up. You always read his mother was, and she's named, I always wondered why that was. There might be a couple reasons, maybe because his father was the last king, so therefore you know who it was. But it's very crucial because generally the next thing that is told about that king was whether he was good or whether he was evil. It had a lot to do with the influence of his mother in his life, the nurture of his mother. Moses' mother did this. Now, the word for nurture in our English Bible isn't there, but it's there in the original text. So in the Greek text in Acts 7, Stephen uh, was talking, was describing Moses, and he says, at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up, he was nurtured for three months in his father's house. That was before he was found by the princess, Pharaoh's daughter, and then uh, she actually sent him back to his mother's home to be further nurtured, and what did she do? She trained him. She gave him his identity. She taught him who he was, who his God was, and so on, so that when he went into the palace and lived in Pharaoh's palace, he knew who he was. He always knew that. And when he grew up and got older, he knew his true identity because of the influence of his mother. Most of us know who John and Charles Wesley were, the uh, founders of the Methodist movement. They wrote a lot of hymns, and uh, they were well-known as preachers. But Susanna Wesley is known as the mother of Methodism due to the fact that she was the one who the Wesley brothers could never stop talking about. She taught them theology. She taught them much in their younger days that they kept all through their life. She taught them what sin was. She taught them how to overcome sin and so on. She taught them how to pray. She was the one who nurtured them in a very special and again, this is a connecting word, nurturing, in a very special and connecting way. Next, you're called to provide, maybe in a different way. But scripture does not say that a woman should not work; it doesn't say that at all. In fact, Proverbs 31, this lady is busy. She's industrious. She seeks wool and flax in verse 13 and works with a willing hands. She's like the ship of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. Listen, everything that goes on, whatever the role is, whether it's uh, work outside the home, work inside the home, a home business could be getting the groceries, or maybe that's a team effort in your home. Whatever it is, this is work that has to be done. Then, of course, starting to offload some of that on the children as well. But this lady in Proverbs 31, she is busy. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She's just working and working and working, but she's also connected with her family. And she's nurturing, and so on. Next we have, you are called to submit. Submit. Yes, there's the word again. Hopefully by now it is not a bad word. Hopefully by now it is a very positive word. Ephesians 5:22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Listen, if Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, then he calls you to submit to the authority of your husband over the home. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Peter says something very similar, and this Peter's context is actually m- much uh, more relevant maybe because he was talking in the context of what happens if people in your world treat you unfairly as a Christian. And he's even talking in the context of what happens if your husband isn't a believer? How should wives respond? And he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. In other words, showing respect, just choosing to show respect to your husband, even as an unbeliever, as someone who cannot spiritually lead the home, you may win him over by your own conduct. When they see, when this husband sees your respectful and pure conduct, Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, even though those things are obviously something that women look to and he's not forbidding that. He's just saying, don't let that be your focus. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight, and that's what matters, in God's sight is very precious. Now, obviously, the same way that we would say Romans 13 says there are limits on how a church or people submit to their government, we would say the very same thing about how you submit to your husband. If he's calling you to sin, you don't submit. There are limits to this. You're called by God to show respect to your husband as he makes choices in leading the family according to God's will you don't need to submit to his desire for you to co-sign on his new yacht because he's in midlife crisis. No, you submit to the Lord by boldly loving him and confronting him with his selfishness and materialism. You will not answer to God for how your husband led the family, but you will answer to God for how you encouraged or discouraged your husband in his leadership role. And that's pretty sobering. Well, just a quick note that next week we're going to be getting into restoring discipline. And with that in mind, I thought I'd throw in a couple for the kids. The first one being, so what does biblical childhood look like? Well, Proverbs 15:20 says a wise son makes glad makes a glad father. Every dad wants that. But a foolish man despises his mother. Well, first of all, you're called to obey. Children are called to obey. Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. Listen, they are agents from God to lead you and teach you wisdom. And secondly, children are called to learn. Learn. Even in Paul's instructions to fathers, do not provoke your children to anger in Ephesians 6.4, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, which we will talk about next week. Even in that, there's an implied responsibility that children listen and learn from the instruction that mom and dad are trying to give. So next week, we're going to go more into the parenting world and what that looks like and how to raise parents, and for now, that's, uh, that covers the topic of biblical leadership and gender roles and responsibilities. We'll have about a 10 minute break again, so 7.50. We'll come back again together and uh, we'll have another discussion up on the stage about this topic and about our experiences. So tonight, we have a new couple with us. Again, why are we doing this? Because testimony, I believe, helps us as the people of God. Hearing the experiences of other people, and people that aren't necessarily professionals at anything, it's it's just people who've lived their lives, right? People who've been down the road, had experiences, God has been teaching them, and so on. That is very, very helpful um, to the rest of us, and I know that has benefited us in the past. So James and Cheryl Palinaki are with us tonight. James is one of our elders, and Cheryl works with our high school youth, correct? Yes and uh, have three boys, and well, why don't the two of you introduce yourselves and just uh, let us know how long you've been married, um, what life is like, what stage of life you're at, and that kind of thing. Good evening,
1: everybody. Uh, so Andrew did introduce us, so James and Cheryl. Um, so we've been married for 20, almost 21 years, and uh, yeah, we have three uh, boys, Uh, Jameson, who's 17, Stellan, who's 16, and our youngest, Cameron, who's 13. What else can I tell for this first question?
0: That's probably good. Yeah, Yeah. do you have anything to add, Cheryl? He covered all the bases. He covered everything, all right, all right. Good leadership. (laughs) That's good leadership.
2: Okay, well, let's start with the natural dynamics of your marriage. So, how would each of you classify yourselves? Are you a natural born leader? or a natural
0: born follower? All
1: right, since I'm the man, I should probably start, right? So I would say, naturally, um, I'm more of a follower. Um, Just my personality, I am definitely was always an introvert, but had to really work hard, both different areas of my life to be more an extrovert, so to be more outgoing. so i tend to i would say i'm put in positions and I, I i again through different opportunities in my life so you know i think of music i was very active and and i i was put in positions where i had to lead and so i embraced it um also in my career um i've been put in positions of, of management where i'm leading people or leading cli- clients and so giving advice so you i i have re- really had to work at that and then just with with leadership roles at the church, um, again, been 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 able to work at the, I would say the deficits where um, you know you, you you don't maybe naturally have these tendencies or, or the things that I lacked. Um, again, through through watching other people um, and obviously learning it as well. There's things you can learn um, and observe. So the, I guess that's where I, I, I've I guess progressed in my own life. Hmm.
3: I would say by nature, I'm a bit of a leader, um, but I do often appreciate if somebody else will take the lead. But if I see that there is a need, I will step in. Um, so my first career choice, I was a high school science teacher, and um, leading a group of teenagers never really intimidated me. In the beginning, Like let's be honest, it totally did because <laughs> Um, I was new at it, I didn't know what I was yeah. doing. Um, but then once I established what I was doing and how to lead that classroom, it was not typically an issue for me. Um, in our relationship, as we'll develop into those with your questions, um, so some of that like with our children and stuff, like that's kind of a bit more natural to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably be defined as an extrovert but Someone laughed. <laughs> I don't know. But I do have <laughs> introverted tendencies. Interesting. That not everybody sees, but I would say, especially as I get older, I see those myself a bit more. But What,
0: what are those tendencies?
3: I like my quiet time. Good. <laughs> um, more than that, I think I would definitely be an extrovert, mm-hmm. I think, um, uh, through our relationship I've seen James develop those tendencies, as he mentioned. We've had opportunities where I do see that come out. Um, but, yeah, I have no problem meeting new people and doing new things like yeah. that. Yeah.
1: We kind of missed this part of the first question, which I'll address now, is, like, what, what attracted me to her? Um, so we, we, we grew up in the same church. I met her. She was 14. I was 13. And I'll say it was love at first sight, um, <laughs> at least for me. But what attracted me to her was that she did have a very outgoing personality, you know, strong character. So those are things that I saw as, hey, we're not the same, and, and I really like that about us. So, mm-hmm. And we've seen that through our marriage, and so, again, we can get into this more, but I thought I'd mention that now.
0: Yeah, that's good.
3: I would say growing up, um, I can speak for myself. So I had a family situation where it, my parents divorced, and then my Dad raised me and he remarried and my, so my dad and my stepmom definitely were able to display a strong relationship with good role models. Mm -hmm. So I was thankful for that. In our own marriage, I would say that we knew what the expectations were, but we were never discipled in how to actually live that out. Interesting. So we had the head knowledge and that foundation And we had some good role models in our lives, but it's like sink or swim, all the best. And so by the grace of God, has He carried us this far, both like in so many aspects of our marriage and in us finding how He wants us to fit those roles. And Mm -hmm. it's truly by the grace of God. as a little plug, um, we look at this type of opportunity and are just so thankful for intentionality in um, discipling couples and in families so that they're well equipped when they come to this point. And I think that's key and that's something that we've learned and hope to be able to instill in our own children Mm -hmm. as well.
1: I'm, I'm actually getting my way because I'm not making a decision. So you learn from those difficult mistakes, to uh, or for those difficult uh, times. To you know, you you have to communicate, and so uh, definitely communication has been something that um, I've worked harder at over the years, and, and hopefully gotten better
0: at. So that's good. You you brought up a great point just about the difference between head knowledge and actual discipleship, which I think is is why if if we just finish this with a lecture and pack people full of answers to things, it would be incomplete if we didn't actually try to have a discussion about what it looks like in real life to work this kind of thing out in someone's experience. Which is why it's, it's huge to do small groups, uh, life groups, discipleship groups, and so on, um, and have multi-generations in those small groups so that you can see it modeled by older christians, more mature christians and so on. Not a lot of not all, I shouldn't say not a lot. Not all small groups get to the point where they're willing to share in their vulnerability, but that's what we should be working toward, that ability to be able to share what the problems we've faced and how god in his grace has helped us. So, that's key. It's a good point.
2: So, James, you kind of touched on this, but for the two of you, how has the Lord worked with each of you to challenge or convict you in your role in your marriage?
1: I think, firstly, for me, it's you know, the awareness of what God expects, you know, what He's laid out in His Word, and um, you know, really putting a, a burden on my heart to yeah, like re- really fulfill my role. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess coming alongside that is knowing that, hey, I, I had deficits. Um, But, first of all, being humble enough to admit it. um, I would say, you know, a lot has to do with, um, you know, finding, um, like in my life, finding a group of men that were really, really able to help disciple me, and see that, hey, you know, guys really struggle with a lot of the same issues, and so you start to see patterns of behavior, and and you can obviously be accountable to that, and that really helped. Um, And then I think, secondly, too, um, being being in a in a church that does value discipleship, that where I wouldn't have seen a lot of that in action, mm-hmm. um, you know, again in early, I'd say in the first ten years. So, you know, the Lord does p- put those things on your heart, and He does stretch you um, when you're confronted with, um, you know, having to lead. And definitely, Cheryl's, I think one of the things she's tried to do as well is um, remind me of my my responsibility. Um, hey,
3: lovingly, should, very yep. lovingly, <laughs> always. <laughs> Most of the time, not maybe not all the time,
1: but you know, she 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 has reminded me of that responsibility and the times that I haven't. Um, you know, I think that, that does that does put something on your heart as a man to say, "Wow, you know what she's noticing, and if I'm not doing what I should do, you know, again in the Lord, then it's not
3: good for both of us." Mm-hmm. And I think for myself in that, um, once I re- like, like I said, I knew it, but once I realized he's accountable to this and you know, that made it, first of all, it gave me a little bit of an out, which I was totally thankful for. Like this is his and, but then came the responsibility as you covered, I had to then support him in that. So it's kind of finding out how those dynamics worked for us. Um, to encourage him to lead, because it would have been, like I said, if I see that somebody's not leading, I'll step in, but rather than to step in, to encourage him, and so that kind of has developed over the years. Um, A couple things you mentioned tonight, like I noticed how um, he's developed in his role, and he's always the first to apologize, always. And um, that's huge. Like, I really appreciate that, Mm -hmm. and I'm thankful for that. And I see, um, I mean, I can't say that he's had specific people speak some of these things into his life, but I've really seen that development in him, and I've appreciated it. And um, I know another thing for me is when I realized we are raising three men, Mm. we have to model what this looks like because I'm really praying for wonderful (laughs) daughters-in-law and so I want to make sure that the men that leave my home will be wonderful fathers husbands and son-in-laws so that was a huge responsibility when it was like okay there are little people who are watching everything we do and that um, I think kind of snapped us into some of our positions as well Mm. and just that we had to and um thankfully we were willing to
1: i mean one other thing that you also learn as a couple is you do observe other couples and and you look you see bad examples right whether it's in your family your friends and so you, you do look at that and say hey it helps you reassess and assess your own relationship and and hopefully find the things that are good about your relationship but um I mean, one of the things that I also learned is, hey, the things that I, I, I lacked from, let's say, my own father, I wanted to make sure that I was gonna do a better job at. Again, mm-hmm. we know that um, not every relationship is perfect, but you strive to be better, let's say, than, than what you would have
0: experienced. And uh, I know my dad's not gonna ever listen to this, so I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'm intrigued because of what you said, Cheryl, but James, take me through for the sake of the guys in this room uh, what kind of fear you faced in being the first to apologize, being the first to break that silence. Uh, Because every guy has that terror (laughs) of rejection, right, of failure. Um, Did you fight with fear in that? Did you struggle with that? Or or was that just something that came naturally to you?
1: I would say like the actual, um, I never had a fear over, hey, you know, admitting I was wrong with something. But often what would prevent me, though, is just pure stubbornness to say, no, I want her to actually sure. apologize sure. first. So, and that was something, again, and you know, you think about yourself 10 years ago, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. I'm like, why shouldn't she initiate first? It's like, you know what, yeah. why, why do I have to? But then I learned, you know what, we both can be very stubborn. And that's, that was a yeah. quality we both learned in terms of our own communication that, um, this wasn't going anywhere, so, you know, I needed to take initiative. So I never had fear, it just was timing of sure. when, when,
0: when am I ready to do it. And maybe a little humility, sounds like. Definitely humility. That, yeah. that stubbornness, yeah, that's good. All right, so I, I think you've had some big decisions in your years of marriage, uh, whether it's a move or an investment or a house or something that you had to buy. Um, just take us through one specific scenario some big decision that you had to face together, uh, maybe you didn't agree on how to move forward, um, and how you navigated that, what that looked like. Because Angie and I really need help with this, we're in the process of a big move right now, so if you could help us.
3: I'll start with, it's kind of, um, because we practice these questions. So it starts with, um, when the, the older two were two and three, James came home and said he had an opportunity to move to Princeton and I said let's go and then I said so where's Princeton Like I didn't care I just wanted out of Windsor funny how God brought us back full circle and so um, we were together on that move we were on the same page but it was interesting because as things you, like you sell your home and you have to find another one we just rented while we were there James took the lead and he was like this strong and steady, whereas I was the emotional, oh, it's not working, maybe this shouldn't happen. And um, so he'd be like, okay, no, this is, we know God's leading us in this, so let's carry on. And so he would take the lead and talk me off the ledge many times. And so then we stayed in New Jersey. yeah so Princeton's New Jersey in case you didn't know Um, and so we stayed there for three years and it was a fabulous experience for us which is a whole different story of just living in um, the awareness of how God is using you and working in your life it was a really um, faith-growing time for us and relationship growing so then we knew it was temporary. We knew that we were supposed to move back to Windsor, and I begged not to, and so we didn't yet. And so then, um, as we were going over this the other night, I totally forgot the story he's about to share. Like, I, um, I've been blessed with um, not being able to remember things. So he could do so many things wrong, and I forget. And so it's a huge blessing. Um, so I never had, I don't hold much over you, because I forget to. So it's a, it is a good thing. So then um, it brought us to this next
1: That's why situation. she doesn't journal, because then she'd remember all the things that I she probably didn't do so well, but no. <laughs> um, yeah, this was, so we, we, we did this move, and we were you know both um, obviously wanting to have change in our life, and we saw it as a blessing. The Lord really stretched us, but because we knew it was temporary, um, and it was really career-driven for me, so I was going for this career opportunity, and I was embracing it, and I said, Hey, this will be really good in the future. So it was kind of in that between two and three years, we knew our, our secondment, because that's really what we treated it as, um, was going to end, and now I was looking forward to, okay, so what's, what am I going to be doing when we move back to Ontario? And I had a lot of conversations with, you know, my, my local team, who then were giving me people to talk to in Ontario. So I knew that we were gonna be moving somewhere in the GTA. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, let's look at Burlington, somewhere in that area. Um, And so Cheryl knew all this and she was pretty excited that we were gonna be relocating to, again, a different area where we were gonna be closer to to Windsor, which is where our family was. But what she didn't know, what I was working on with again the team in ontario was they wanted me to work in toronto just because again that's where the team was and they wanted me to continue this project so i was pretty excited um and i was telling you this but not sharing with her much information so as you can imagine i'm at work i have all these conversations and have these plans but i'm not involving her all she knows is we got to move in six months but what are we going to do and so the stress there was um, well, first of all, she has all these questions like, well, what's the job gonna look like? Do you have to commute? I don't wanna live in Toronto. And then the question about salary came up. And so i had been having conversations with my, my future kind of boss, and I was gonna be taking like a pretty, pretty big salary cut. So then in my mind, I'm like, you know what? I understand the market's different. Um, I'll be able to make that up in a few years. But for her, it's like, there's no way. You, you're making this much money you're valuable you should fight for it again me being more passive I'm like there could be a good opportunity I should accept that and so that was a big struggle and then we got to the point where like we weren't even sure where we're going to live so all of these it what 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 it showed us is that she's stressing about all these things we didn't really talk about how do we resolve this but in my mind I'm like it'll work out and I just knew that You know, th- things will work out, and, and they did, but we just processed it very differently. Um, and so that was a challenging, you know, six months. because yeah. we had a new baby, and a lot of questions about, you know, that, and she's worried about schooling. So, like, you just learn that um, you just process differently, and I think that really hit me when, when you had your f- first or second night about communication is, again, men process things mm-hmm. differently than women do, and so I just took for granted that, um, if I wasn't worried she shouldn't be so I I wasn't sensitive to her needs
3: (laughs) and I'm a verbal processor so I just want to talk it out and I want all the details and I want to go over it and plan it and then replan it and then look again and so it was a bit of a challenge but ultimately the decision was his to lead our family Mm -hmm. and so we knew that that would involve moving back to Canada and we were both good with that and so I did leave that in his hand as the provider of our family he had to make that ultimate decision and and God blessed it right like we're not um, there so much so that I forgot about it like I just um, was like it it all worked out as God has proven his faithfulness over and over again Um, but in our humanity sometimes even when we submit to his leading it's easy to, to question and to second guess. And so um, it's just that's been kind of our journey, both um, in submitting to James, in both of us submitting to the Lord's leading, um, mm-hmm. but something that you know we try to put into practice, yeah. but we still always have lessons to learn.
0: Yeah, it, uh, that story brings back just some memories for us. I'm sure you're thinking of the same thing I am. But when we moved to Windsor, from where we were in Chatham. um, We left a nice property, nice home behind and uh, we went through a period where a number of bad things happened all at once and uh, Ange was grieving the move. Of course, it was kind of on me, uh, the decision of the house we would buy. She was grieving that, grieving the loss of our home where we were, that we had spent years uh, building. And I, I took it as, this is on me i've messed up my wife is miserable and i uh, that was such a, a huge blow maybe you can talk about how you process that a little bit
2: yeah i mean we were struggling from leaving ministry going back into secular um employment yeah i know at one point just the discussion of finances came up and i remember i don't know if you remember this but he Andrew had said to me well, you may just have to go back to work. And Drew was, I think, one, around mm-hmm. one years old. And I was like, I am not going back to work. We have a one-year-old. And like, so we just had, we had a ton to process. And yeah. um, really, I think that's where we started to realize um, how differently we do communicate and mm-hmm. um, how much the burden of finances for me was just, we just need to talk about this. Like, I just... Yeah. I just wanna know that we're gonna be okay. And me talking about that with Andrew came across as he's not an adequate provider. And so we just really had to work through um, a lot of that. I was grieving leaving relationships and coming to a new church and knowing no one and just starting all over. Um, this lovely couple welcomed us into their home very quickly and just things that we, um, God met our needs, but we, we grew a lot in that
0: yeah that that whole the dynamic there uh leaving our old network of churches and moving here moving to harvest and so on actually draws out the differences in the genders because Ange was grieving relationships connections i was like full steam ahead we've got we got places we, we're going right i was all about direction and mission and like it couldn't happen fast enough um what was behind was not, it took me a while to, I think, andrew was far uh, more in tune with the grief, and it took me a while for that grief to come to the surface. And when it did come to the surface, it was more in anger than anything. But yeah, the, the gender differences and all of that, and how, how we process all came to the surface. James, there was a question for you. Um, regarding, uh, have you ever dealt with defensiveness in being confronted by Cheryl. What, uh, what did you do to handle that, to counteract that?
1: That's happened a few times, I can, I can recall. Um, yeah, I mean, I can think of one occasion where it was, it was a sin in my life. And she basically gave me a resource, like gave me a book and said, I want you to read this. So first of all, it was like, wow. How do you know about that? And so there, there's, you're defensive in the, there's um, a bit of guilt and, and shame in that. But I think what I realized, at least in that instance, was, well, she loves me enough to actually give this t- to me out of obviously concern that um, I deal with it.
3: But I'm so loving. It's so funny. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know what though I've I've often told her uh, Well, this is another story because this was again her personality coming out we we, in our first year of marriage we're like assembling this desk it's one in the morning and it's not going well and I'm like this just is ridiculous and then she starts acting like a school teacher and I'm her student I'm like this is not going to work and so I remember telling her like um I don't know, th- that was that respect that yes. you expect. Yeah. And I think I said something like, well, my mother would have asked me nicely to do it, or, and then that was where it was like, that's it. You know what, you just said the wrong thing. I'm not your mother. And uh, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I probably should never compare you to my mother again. I don't <laughs> um, think you did, no. but,
3: but there, it did come up again. And I found that I would speak to him, like my teacher persona would come out. And he finally, because like, I would say, like, As a teacher, I would never say, oh, can you please dot, dot, dot. I never gave him the option. It was like, no, I need you to dot, 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 whatever it was. And so he goes, did you realize that's how you speak to me? Hmm. I would say, oh, I need you to, even if it was totally an innocent thing, but my tone and the words that I chose, I realized were affecting him. So then it had to be a conscious, don 't speak to him like he 's a student, and you know to have the respect mm-hmm. for him in how I spoke to him, yeah. which you know for sometimes it 's easy to default to what you know, so there 's that constant internal okay, how do I say this, and mm. to give myself a pause, which is not my natural yeah, either, yeah. as a verbal processor, so um, just those things we've learned together, but then I didn't know it. I needed him to tell me that mm-hmm. and to identify that for me. Interesting.
0: Did you discover that along the way?
3: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> was there? <laughs> yes. Any light bulb moments? Oh,
2: uh-huh. there's gradual. There's yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's pivot to parenting. How have you navigated your leadership roles in raising your three boys?
3: So when they were young, I stayed home with them um, for most of that period. And so the day-to-day fell on me. And we were on the same page in how to parent. And so um, the only... A couple times I remember, he would come home and he'd want to solve the problem. I'd be like, wait a minute. You don't know the backstory. Like, let me catch you up. Let me... You know, tell you what happened because he would just con he would come home, and whether it was chaos or me standing with my coat waiting for him to come home or whatever it depends on the age and stage mm-hmm. um, so I did a lot of that day to day, but we were clear on who led our family like I think we so I would say even in the early stages, it was going back to what I said earlier, we would have always made sure to verbalize that dad is the head of the home and that's developed into a display on him leading and how to lead. So it's changed through the years, it's developed, but I would say that there's been a lot of intentionality, but even to the point where I was never that mom that would be like, wait till your dad gets home. Like I would never hand over that authority my mm-hmm. children needed to know that when I was present, yes. I was the authority figure. But, when he, but sometimes it would be, "Oh, this is a big decision, mm-hmm. or this is something bigger. We will discuss it when yeah. dad gets home. Right. So there was kind of the, the differentiation depending on the situation. Yeah. But um, they knew that when mom was there that I was in charge, but ultimately dad is the leader of our home.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, the kids are afraid of you. Maybe not anymore, but they
3: used to be. <laughs> I, I think they still are. <laughs> so it was always it's like, healthy. It's should a healthy we go theory.
1: to dad or mom? <laughs> they would try both, and I'm like, wait a second. Yes. Have, you, have you talked to your mom? Yes, okay. It's, the answer is no still. <laughs> um, yeah, you navigate discipline. Um, like, we talk about, you know, the things that we wanted to, um, you know, what our limits were in terms of how to discipline the children. Um, yeah, I agree with Cheryl that, you know, she said, because she was home, she was dealing with a lot of the issues. And so we, we just tried real hard to, you know, catch each other up on what was happening. And, and of course, when you're not home as, as a dad and you're working, you get home and everything should be fine. And then when, when it's not, you mm-hmm. kind of wonder, like, what, what am I to do? So, yeah, I, I, I tried to give her the benefit of, hey, she's had a hard day. And so I tried to be more sensitive with, L- let me distract the kids while you're making sure. dinner.
3: Um, I, I, Jen? I have more to say but. I have a specific very recent example, and so it 's a little brag on James moment. Um, so because of the time i 've spent with the kids i 'm often their first go to if they have something they 'll come to me um, you know there 's the emotional connection, it all depends what they want, right, sure. and so we were dealing with this and um, but so recently we 've just had some. Some things come up in our parenting where um, it's changed. I mean, they're teenagers, so we parent very differently. And um, one of our sons was just, you know, going through some stuff, which, you know, he came to me and we talked it through, but then it needed a bit more. And so I've recently had this opportunity to just watch James lead. And so we have these, we'll sit down with this one son, And I'm just, like, totally impressed because he is leading and he's pulling out examples from the Bible and he is just being such a strong example to our son. And so the other advantage is that he tempers my emotion. So where I would have an emotional response, I've had the opportunity to Sit back, let him lead, and by him not being emotional, being the leader, being, you know, pulling up these biblical reasons for some of these decisions, it tempers me automatically. So I don't even have to have that emotional response. And so it's just been a great example for me to see this is when parenting can go well Mm -hmm. because I am submitting to the leader of our home. And then the other advantage is our son is seeing that in action. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's humbling, and it's exciting, and it's scary, and there's so much involved in that, sure. right? Because sure. of, of what we go through. Yeah.
0: I appreciate that. But only Lord could have helped me because uh, I wouldn't have known what to do. Okay. <laughs> Did you have more to say about that subject? I, I wanted to ask, someone. someone is, um, asked a question obviously a concern and um, it's kind of for both of you but let's say let's say James was fathering in a way that you didn't appreciate um, and James's question questions for you as well here but what what should a wife a Christian wife do in that situation I kind of talked tonight about the limits of submission um, But let's say the father's taking the boys out to the bar or whatever, pull an extreme. Um, Doing something with them that is not approved, not not agreed to by the parents. Um, The question is, what should a Christian wife do? How should she handle this with respect uh, to her husband and uh, in a way that honors God? What would you say, James? Do you have any thoughts on that as an elder?
1: <laughs> Put you right on the spot. I guess I have to. I have to think about the application too. But um, I can. I'll say from experience. You know, we have had moments where you just you just you do a, a, a less than adequate job as a parent disciplining sure. your kids. So what we what I've seen her do, I think, well is. Don't address it, you know. It, so if I've just lost it on the kids, gotten angry, and been very unreasonable, so let that pass, but then she will pull me aside and just challenge me on that. Interesting. And yeah. say, um, I don't think that's the right ex- uh, expression that you, you were wanting to get out yeah. of the kids. Or even just, she'll make a face, and uh, I'm like, <laughs> I think I know what that means. <laughs> Yeah. So where, again, where it, it makes you all of a sudden, okay, maybe I, I shouldn't take this route with, you know, this, the yeah. kid you're disciplining. Um, so it's both verbal and nonverbal. Um, I don't, I, I mean, you may have done it in, in front of the kids mm-hmm. too, um, to make. But the, the cases I can think of, you try to do it in a way that's obviously challenging to me, but not saying, hey, you messed up, man.
0: Yeah.
3: I would try to be intentional in that. <clears throat> I do... Um, hold your position high in our relationship and in the eyes of our children so there have been times I've failed absolutely um, but it, it would be definitely I would hope to pull you aside not in front of the children yeah. um, and then like there are some times you have to put a hard stop um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not certain if I can call to mind you know short memory and all that, but mm-hmm. uh, anything in particular in our family where I've had to kind of do a hard stop with the kids there.
1: You may, you may have kind of said something that makes me think, oh, maybe that's probably not what we should be doing right now. Mm-hmm. I speak with, think with my example.
3: face a lot, not just yeah. my words. And so you probably <laughs> read yeah. it in my face.
0: Yeah, that's good. So, I don't know, Ange, do you have any input on that? Like, how would would the two of you counsel uh, a lady that came to you with that kind of a problem? What would you tell them?
2: I think the first thing I would do is definitely encourage prayer over it. Mm. Because I remember there were some things that, especially when we had boys, um, I just had a thought of how they should be raised. And it was very much not raising them as natural born adventure loving boys, but keep them safe, keep them unbroken. And Andrew was like, you have to let them go. Like you have to let, if they fall, they will scrape their themselves, they will pick themselves up, they will keep going. Or I remember I didn't want guns and our um, second born, our first son, it was, I don't know, 15 months, 18 months maybe, and we're out in the yard and he picks up a stick and he's shooting with it. And at the <laughs> point we had no guns. And it was just, so things that um, I may have struggled with that maybe, Andrew was kind and let me work through those things, but the first thing I would do is encourage any woman in that situation to pray. Um, and really just make sure that it isn't something that is, is it sinful or is it just out of your own comfort zone? Sure.
3: I would also encourage, as you said, to seek wise counsel, but I want to preface that with to make sure it's not gossip, and to make sure that you're not bashing your husband. Yes. Because I know there have been times I've been out with uh, friends, these would definitely be my, um, the friends I used to work with, they're not Christians, and I would just come home and I'm like, man, they're so mean about their husbands. It's unbelievable Mm -hmm. and so I try to um, respect James even when he's not around I mean I like to laugh I like to have a good time so I mean he's had to learn that sometimes it's just a joke like we're having fun but ultimately I would definitely try to convey a message of respect no matter where I am so going back though um, is to find a woman that can help you because parenting can be isolating if you feel alone in what you're doing, especially if you're not on the same page with your husband. Mm-hmm. And so as James mentioned, it's important to have people in your life that you can look to that are maybe a little step ahead of you. Yeah. Um, I know we have valued those relationships in our own life and um, to, to find those people that you can say, listen, here's my struggle. Absolutely, you pray about it um, and and search your own heart to make sure that your intentions are right, Um, but to seek help of of a wise woman.
0: That's good advice. So to the two ladies on the stage, what would you say to the woman who's convinced you cannot trust men to lead you or your family? Um, maybe from trust issues in the past or from history, what kind of advice would the two of you give to a woman who, who is convinced you can't trust men to lead the family?
3: I mean, in those examples, I think um, sharing personal examples can be helpful. Um, reflecting on the times that God has shown his faithfulness in your own examples, biblical examples, and ultimately bringing it back that if this is how God set it up, he meant it for our good. And um, this is a little challenging for me because it is relatively easy to submit to James because he's a good leader, even though it is a bit against my nature. Mm -hmm. Um, He's made it a lot easier. Um, Now, like. I realize i'm making this sound like it's been super easy like we've had our challenges okay for sure but ultimately you know this is 20 years in the making that have gotten us to this point Um, so sometimes it can be hard from your own personal examples if you haven't experienced that but that's why it's always important to bring it back to god's design if god this isn't a gray area this is Mm -hmm. black and white he clearly outlined um, our roles as men and women. Uh, We have the example of the fall and why it has all fallen apart because of that. But his ultimate design would be to bring it back to that. And so if we submit to the fact that God wants this for our good, then it's worth the effort that it takes, even when it's hard. That's
2: good. That's excellent. I would echo that. I would say again kind of going back to what the question earlier about um, you know if your husband is not um, with you know with the kids raising them and and doing something you're not comfortable with um, when it comes to trust I would say one of the things you have to look at is is it a trust issue with your husband or does it go back further Um, similar to Cheryl I um, come from a divorced home And I don't think I realized how deeply that affected me, and not just to trust in men, but just trust in general with people. So if you said, oh, we'll meet for dinner at five, I'll trust you'll be there. Superficial things, that's not a problem, but to go deeper took a long time. And in our marriage, it was probably, I was thinking about this today, I wanna say five to 10 years for me really to relax and fully trust Andrew. And that's from a relationship where there was no issue. He gave me no question to doubt him or um, his love for me or gave me a reason to that trust, but it just took a while. So I would say, if, if that is your situation, um, there may be some biblical counseling that needs to happen. It would have definitely benefited our relationship at the beginning. Um, and yeah, you, I go from there. So then, James and Andrew, Flip the question, <clears throat> excuse me, what message would you want to give men who have zero confidence that they can leave their wives and their families if they were to come to you and ask you that?
1: Yeah, I'd start with, you know, if they're a, a biblical Christian, start with the fact that, um, yeah, God's enabled them even though, um, you know, they're not perfect and that God will, God will enable them and that he's, he's given them all the tools. Um, you know, for, for a man, I would also say, you know, look at your strengths, obviously embrace them, but also um, you know, look at your weaknesses and work hard at overcoming the things that are not actually, uh, you know, a strength for you. Um, you know, one of the things I've learned from and I may have already mentioned it is, you know, find men that can help you. Uh, that was really key for me, um, you know, m- many areas of my life with with my relationship with Cheryl or, um, you know, with raising kids is finding good, godly men. I think that that is a huge thing that I can say helped me along the way, um, yeah. Cause you can, so find them, talk to them, observe them and, and really get the most that you can out of someone who um, you can learn from, yeah, and be humble. <clears throat> Again, God, God can, work through two, as you said before, two sinful people that are trying to make this thing work. And, and again, you know, it's not cliche, but y- y- you know, praying together, um, you know, being humble, admitting when you're wrong, I think goes a long way in yeah.
0: maintaining just a good marriage. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. I would, I would also just say your validation doesn't come from your wife, ultimately. It has to come from the gospel. Your validation has to come from who God made you to be, what God says about you, and the fact that he was willing to give his own son to pay for you, to redeem you, to make you to be the man that he's called you to be. Uh, We don't lead based on whether or not we're accepted or rejected by our wives. We lead because Jesus is king, and our validation has to come from him. Nowhere else, that was a big uh, turning point for me is realizing that um, and not idolizing, not making my wife's validation or my wife's respect an idol in my life. That shouldn't define what I do, what I don't do, because that's just the fear of man, right? That's all it is, it's a horizontal fear. But actually fearing God, understanding who I am in Christ, and then moving forward with what he's called me to do, and that's lead my family, regardless of what comes. So thank you both for joining us tonight. And it's uh, been a lot of helpful advice and uh, just through your experiences. Could I ask the two of you to close us out in prayer?
3: Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we're just um, humbled by everything you have to show us, everything you have for us to learn, and we thank you, um, for your word, which is our ultimate source, but also for people who step into our lives and who give us these examples. We thank you, Lord, for a solid teaching, um, for the intentionality um, for us in our sanctification as we live out our lives for you. I pray, Lord, for everybody in this room and for everybody who will listen to this, Lord, that um, your word will fill in the gaps where we've left um, spaces but that lives will be changed and that families will be changed and relationships will be changed Lord we know that uh, there's a purpose to having these discussions and so Lord we pray that that purpose will be made clear but in all of this and everything that we do that it will be for your glory Lord as we know that everything we do um, needs to point back to you or it's futile and it's useless so lord we pray that um, our lives will be a living example of you and what you want in our lives and we thank you for your grace for the times that we fail in jesus name
1: amen lord i thank you for uh, jesus christ lord for his perfect life and that as we look uh, to him and, and we look to Lord, the relationship that the Father has with the Son and, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we're reminded tonight, Lord, that you have Lord a perfect relationship, and that you've given that Lord so that we can um, really understand what it means, Lord, to be submissive, um, or, or to have authority, and that it is something that we can embrace. And Lord, for those who are here tonight, um, I pray for their hearts. Pray that you would. Uh, that all these messages and Lord, what's been said and what's been shared would would really fall on on good ground i pray that um lord, hearts that are struggling right now um, or marriages that are, are not doing well i just pray for a a, a large measure lord of your your grace and um, lord your mercy uh, in their lives and that you would lord restore uh, we know that's ultimately what you want to do um, with Lord, people and marriages is to restore them, Lord, to um, just a relationship that is founded on you, ultimately, and that can reflect, Lord, your love. Lord, I pray for the families that are represented here as well, that, um, that parents would, would just, again, through your strength, um, raise the next generation, Lord, with these principles. And, I, and, and we know that if we can do that, Lord, that we will, um, Lord, have success knowing that, Lord, you, you will bless. And so we, we, we trust in you, and we would ask that you would do uh, much more than we're able to do. Um, and, Lord, we know and trust that, Lord, your blessings uh, will be with us if we're, if we're faithful um, and if we're following your will. So thank you, and uh, we pray all this in the name of Jesus.
0: Amen. Amen.